Hammer Japan, I'm Frank Ling, and you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and effects on our daily lives. From Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And this is Elise Kovic, and today we're going to talk about my favorite and nature's perfect predators, mantids, with doctors Gavin Spenson and David Yeager. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. order Mantidea and are of the most diverse, recognized, and fascinating groups of insects. Members of this group have either ambush or pursuit predatory behaviors. They have highly evolved sensory systems and they occupy diverse habitats across the globe. So we're going to talk to Dr. Svensson and Jaeger, who are collaborators on Project Mantidea, about patterns of evolution in these amazing insects. Dr. Svensson is a research assistant professor at the University of New Mexico and postdoctoral researcher slash assistant curator at the New York State Museum. And Dr. David Jaeger is an associate professor at the University of Maryland. Hello, gentlemen. Welcome to the Grok Science Show. Hi. Hi. So I was hoping that we could start out by learning a bit more about what the Project Mantidea is and who's involved. Okay, well, the uh, Project Mantidea is, is basically a uh, new effort to try and understand the relationship of the order praying mantises in a broader sense. So historically, we've used morphology to classify different relationships and, and how we think praying mantises are related to each other and what groups uh, have certain morphological features that mean something, and, and we're able to classify based on those morphological features. But recently, with the use of DNA data, we've been able to show that the classification is actually at odds with the genetic relationships of praying mantises, which provides a very interesting pattern in that the praying mantises have evolved in a very different way compared to the morphology. So Project Mantodia is trying to reconcile the morphological relationships and the genetic relationships with a team of collaborators distributed across the globe in a number of different countries. I think there's about 25 people involved in the project at this point. Wow. So the dogma is that the characteristics have been segmented based on environmental adaptation characteristics? Right. So one great example in this project is there are a group of organisms or a group of mantises called bark mantises, and they live on the tree trunks of trees. And you can think about uh, there's only a certain number of ways you could possibly live on a tree trunk and not be predated by a bird or a lizard. Mm -hmm. So you have to have camouflage. You have to have the ability to run back and forth on the bark of the tree in 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 a quick manner to avoid the predators and blend in. So the environmental constraints imposed on a group like this that's distributed across the world is probably going to make them look quite similar. And presumably, they would have evolved from a single ancestor because their shape is so unique and so distinct compared to the other groups. Well, the genetic information actually tells us that this shape or ecomorph strategy has evolved five independent times across the world. 
So that brings me to my next question. While I was reading up on this, it seems that there are a bunch of different schools of thoughts out there. I think the name of the researcher is Bayer, broke Mentodia into eight different families, and then you guys used molecular data to break it down into five. And then there have been other ways to group these lineages as well. So what sort of data has been used slash characteristics to actually group these guys in the past? Right. So the number of researchers have taken stabs at trying to figure out the overall relationships of the groups and how they're classified together. You can consider that one person working in an authoritative framework can, and can come up with one structure while another person can look at that same structure and have a different opinion about how these things are related. And 100 years ago, we only really had morphology. Bayer worked in the early 1900s, so he was using general morphology as his data source. Mm-hmm. So he basically had to form opinions about how these groups are related based on largely external morphology, like the forelegs have particular features in the wing shape, and maybe the male genitalia could be informative to him. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And maybe someone else down the road would look at it differently and have different characters and value different external morphological characters with, with greater power and maybe come up with a different structure. So historically, it's basically been authoritative opinion and expertise about how these things are related. And only recently have we been able to use genetic information to independently test how these groups might be related in comparison to the classification. This is not saying the the classification is wrong. Mm -hmm. There's just portions of it that may need to be realigned and adjusted to reflect uh, better relationships within the group. It seems that um, it would be a bit of an understatement to say that these discrepancies in the taxonomic studies um, really slowed down research into matted evolution. Is that fair to say? In some respect, yes, but I, I'm hesitant to put any fault on uh, <laughs> before me. That, uh, sure, that, uh, sure. Uh, I, think, I think it's true. If you don't have a classification that reflects the actual relationships, it does hinder other subsequent research for people working outside of classification. I mean, the Linnaean system has a purpose. It's our language of life. It's mm-hmm. it's how we how we pass information back and forth about what an organism is and what characteristics that organism might have based on a name its value, it has meaning, and if those are not accurate, they can reflect incorrect ideas about what a group actually is. And yes, that type of system would hinder other comparative biologists working on on different systems like Dr. Yeager. Mm -hmm. Now, is it true, I I believe that I read somewhere that um, Antodia is considered a a small order of insects, and I I was surprised considering how widespread and diverse these guys are. So can you expand on that a bit? Yeah, it's surprising that something that has uh, 2,500 species would be considered a small insect order. Yeah. Uh, but when you're when you're comparing that against uh, beetles, which have hundreds of thousands of species, it's quite small. But the distribution of it is across the world and mostly in the southern hemisphere because biogeographic origi- origins suggest that the group that we know of today, the modern mantises, appear to evolve in the supercontinent Gondwana around mm-hmm. 200 and 200 million years ago or 170 million years ago, during the Jurassic, basically. And they're most closely related to cockroaches, so they, they kind of spawned from there. Let's talk about this diversity, though. Morphologically, the adults can range from, say, 2 to 25 centimeters in length. What sort of environmental factors drove these differences in the size and appearance? 
Boy, there's a... There's a big uh, question right there. Yeah, there's, it's a big question. There's a lot of thought associated with how these things came to be and why they're so diverse. I mean, most people in the United States think of a praying mantis as the normal, everyday green mantis sitting in their backyard, mm-hmm. which around the world, that form is indeed present. But you can get very, very small mantises that live on the undersides of leaves and are very, very camouflaged. You can get very flat mantises. You can get mantises that look just like a dead leaf that hang upside down on a branch. There's a mantid in Africa and Madagascar that looks just like a a stick. You'd have a very difficult time distinguishing the mantis if you walk up to a bramble of bushes. Hmm. And then there's things that look incredibly similar to flowers like the orchid mantis in Southeast Asia. So where and how this form came to be, yeah, it's a very good question. And it's a career long research project, I guess. Yeah. So what about geography? Um, You touched on that a second ago. How have differences in geography provided the insight into the patterns of the appearance of the different families? In other words, can you use information about where to find out more about when? Yeah, we can. So the genetic evidence has given us a good idea of when the groups actually were diverging, and their current distribution now gives us an idea of where they were diverging. Mm -hmm. And it appears that major divergences within in the praying mantis lineage happened at the same time we were seeing big continental vicariance events, mm-hmm. such as the splitting of South America and Africa. And with that pattern present, you can start to reconstruct where and when the groups came to be and then start forming hypotheses about how the specializations might have occurred. For instance, It wasn't until the mid to late Cretaceous that we actually saw major, major diversification within praying mantises. Mm -hmm. Until that time, there was a number of lineages that were present. But why that is, why that took so long, and why that didn't take place until the late Cretaceous is really unknown. Maybe it's because flowering plants evolved during that period of time and provided a greater number of niches that mantises could specialize into. But really for a predatory group of insects, it's it's incredible how much they have diversified and the amount of plasticity in, in their form and function and life strategy is, is quite remarkable. And, and I can't think of too many other groups that demonstrate the same pattern. No, you're, you're absolutely right. In your 2009 paper in Cladistics, um, one of the things that I read that your data suggests that Antarctica played a major role in mantis diversity, building on what you just said. So this is interesting because you hear Antarctica and you associate that with being frozen, and I associate mantids with the tropics. So tell me more about that. Well, mantids can survive quite effectively in uh, more temperate environments, and we do see that down in the southern hemisphere, working into the southern reaches of South America. And what was happening in Antarctica during the major diversification of praying mantises was it was actually quite warm. So a lot of fossil evidence exists where many tropical plants exist at higher latitudes and during thermal maximums in environment where CO2 levels were much higher in the atmosphere, Mm -hmm. we can reconstruct what Antarctica looked like and what the environment could have been back then. Mm -hmm. So 100 million years ago or 8 to 80 million years ago, it was actually quite a bit warmer and was not a frozen tundra that Mm -hmm. we see today. And because there were connections between South America and Antarctica and Australia, and as well as India, you could imagine that If there was a population of mantises occurring in these regions, as there probably were since we know that there are 
is a huge diversity of mantises in Australia and South America and India, we could assume that movement probably happened across Antarctica. Unfortunately, there's not a real good way of testing this hypothesis, and it's just a hypothesis at this point sure. until we can maybe find some fossils that would confirm what might be happening. But I guess that would require uh, ice to melt off of Antarctica, which, which could most happen any don't day. Want. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> okay, I have to stop you for a second and just ask you one one technical question. What's the plural of mantis? Is it mantid? Is it mantids? Is it mantises? Because I keep well, hearing everything. Can, right. You can go with whatever you know, whatever you really want. I mean, it, a, a common name has great use and it's flexible. The name Mantidae is specifically the family name Mantidae in mm. the Latin. If you say Mantid, usually an entomologist says the short name of a family name mm-hmm. and it usually ends in a D. So many people say Praying Mantid and it's uh, referring to that particular family. Many people say mantis, and it refers to all of mantises, but the first genus of praying mantises was actually mantis. So this is one of these occurrences where the the scientific names and the common names have become interchanged and uh, can be used as such. But as long as everybody knows what everybody's talking about, it's fine. (laughs) So I'm, I'm an incredibly uneducated mantis geek. I've been telling people that I raise them as pesticide, which is a big joke. I raise them because I love them. And, um, <laughs> and so for the past few years, we always keep a couple of them in our lab. We always name them after prominent neuroscientists, and we keep them as the lab pets. Every now and then, you know, there are times when you just don't quite feel like doing your own science, but you need to have journal article up on your computer just in case your PI walks in. And <laughs> so one day I felt like playing with the mantid and just reading about them. And I found a paper that both of you wrote about the mantis auditory evolution, and I struck gold because I could actually be working on the auditory system and screwing around at the same time. So yay, thanks guys. So this paper was published in 08, and it was really quite informative. I I enjoyed it immensely. Um, But going back to the previous topic would be for, for Dr. Yeager, has a lack of phylogenetic data made life harder when you are trying to use mantids to study your evolution. Oh, phenomenally so. There's a really interesting intersection with the discrepancy you were talking about earlier between the anatomical and the genetic ways of determining relationships. I had spent about 20 years collecting data about the morphology of the mantis ear. It's a very odd structure. I mean, they just have one ear Uh, that's located in the the middle of the underside of their body between their legs. No other animal has just a single ear like that, which is partly why we study it. And I'd use characteristics, morphological characteristics, to create essentially a phylogeny mantis ears. Mm -hmm. You know, which ones were the primitive, which were the more derived. The problem was that when I went to superimpose that or correlate it with Max Beyer's scheme or some of the other morphological folks, Mm -hmm. it didn't work. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was completely wrong, according to them. But then I went to a talk that Gavin gave where he had been giving, working on the phylogeny based on genetics. His stuff didn't agree with Max Beyer either. Right, Gavin? That's correct, yeah. And we didn't agree in exactly the same way. So our two phylogenies were congruent. Gavin and I found the same relationships in two independent ways, which was an amazing moment. And a wonderful collaboration since then? The beginning of it, yes, indeed. 
which which means there's there are morphological features out there which can give you accurate phylogenetic relationships, but historically we seem to have been looking at the wrong ones. Right. So the Mantid auditory system's unique, like you just said. What, what would be one of the benefits uh, of having it placed between your legs, essentially? And don't they have two different eardrums in comparison to other insects that, act, that do have tympanums? Well, the, my current idea is that, in fact, they may have four. Oh, really? Um, they have a single ear that's created by the fusion of sort of two hemi-ears. Mm-hmm. And that makes a chamber. So there's an auditory chamber that helps shape the sound frequencies that they hear, and it helps make the ear more sensitive. There's a tympanum in each wall, a big tympanum. Some of the data we've been collecting lately says that there may be two smaller tympana also that somehow interact there. As far as advantages go, it's easier to think of disadvantages off the top of your head. Most animals have two ears so they can tell where a sound is coming from. Mm-hmm. And... Obviously, the mantis with one ear can't do that, and we've proven that with behavioral and neurophysiological tests. On the other hand, mantises are really adept at escaping from predators, and specifically bats. Um, They hear primarily ultrasound, Mm -hmm. so they can hear the echolocation cries of bats as they're hunting. And in a funny sort of way, having one ear helps them because it means they can't tell the direction, so they dive any which way. Hmm. So the bat really can't predict where a mantis is going to dive. Hmm. So there's no way a bat can learn um, how, to, how to counteract this insect's escape maneuvers. Expand, if you will, on echolocation. Ooh. So a large, a large proportion of bats that fly around and eat insects produce ultrasonic pulses that go out, and if there's an object, they bounce off of the object, the echo comes back to the bat, and the bat can tell where the object is, how far away it is. In fact, bats are extraordinarily good at this. Mm -hmm. Uh, They can even tell how fast the wings are are moving for like a moth. Hmm. They can tell textures sometimes. So the insect is faced with a, a truly formidable predator. The advantage that the manis and some other insects have is that they can. The bats have to look for, listen for the echo, and the echo tends to be uh, quite soft. Manises can hear the direct call of the bat, so the manises generally can hear the bat before the bat can detect the manis. So they have a little bit of time to get away. This ear that's called the cyclopean ear, uh, mm-hmm. that's what you call it? That's the ear that actually uh, hears the ultrasonic cries? Now, I know that there are earless mantids. So could these cyclopean-eared mantids, could they actually be organized into a suborder, perhaps? There, there is a lineage early in the, uh, the relationships of mantids. It's the, there's a whole clade of South American mantids that, that are deaf and do not have this uh, ear structure. Mm -hmm. And then previous to that, there's a lot of fossil mantises, and they also don't appear to have this ear structure. Um, So what we we do see when we uh, put all of the data together and created the phylogeny is that there was, in fact, a single origin of this auditory structure Mm -hmm. within praying mantises, and this happened subsequent to the origin of all of the extant or living praying mantis lineages. So what we see is we, we, we do have broad representation of this diversity that all do not have the capability of hearing. And then, and then subsequent to that, 
there are more. So if you were to split it up into more classification scheme, the vast majority of praying mantises do appear to have some ancestral or historical auditory ability. So it would be more on like a subordinal level than a, a family or a subfamily relationship. I can add just a bit to that. We found that in a lot of cases, uh, mantises have lost hearing. Hmm. So they come from groups that had hearing. But what is the most common pattern is that it's only the female that's lost hearing, and the male retains his hearing. Interesting. In other words, you have a single species in which one sex can hear and the other sex can't. And that seems to be linked to the presence of wings. So that if you're in the old world and you find a mantis that has wings, basically I can guarantee that that mantis has good hearing. And if you find a mantis that doesn't have wings any place, then I can pretty much guarantee that it has really bad or no hearing at all. That's interesting. Now, okay, here's another question. Would it be at all possible that um, the ones that actually do hear well aren't as well camouflaged as the ones who are earless? Hmm, interesting idea. Um, I would say there's no broad generalization. You couldn't come up with a broad generalization. Yeah, I don't, I don't see one either, actually. No. Yeah, because some of the most camouflaged flower mantises um, great here. Quite, quite. Oh, really? Good. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Interesting. All right, so your study used anatomical, physiological, behavioral, and molecular data to study the evolution of mantid auditory processing. So amongst many other things, it revealed that mantids have five distinct auditory systems. And I was surprised because I I thought that they were more visually-led insects. Mm -hmm. Um, so, So tell me about these five distinct systems. Yeah, the common view is that mantises are predominantly visual. I mean, they have these great big eyes, and they, you know, turn their heads on their neck that makes them look very human. The five auditory patterns, one of the patterns is the one I just told you about, where the females can't hear and the males can. Mm -hmm. And that, that actually covers two of the patterns. One of the patterns is the one that Gavin was just talking about, where the mantises are primitively deaf. In other words, their lineages didn't, never had ears. One of the lineages is the ultrasound ear, and then sort of the most mysterious to us is several times, I think I've counted 11 times now, groups of mantises have evolved a second ear. Hmm. Uh, But that second ear, it's not on the sides of the body. It's It's a serially homologous ear. In other words, it's in the same, one is between the third pair of legs and the other one's between the second pair of legs. Okay. They're built of the same parts but in different parts, different areas of the body, built of corresponding parts. If I remember correctly, that one, um, there's no sense of directionality. It can't actually detect that. No, it can't. It hears a different frequency range. Lower frequencies, right? Much lower frequencies, yeah. Interesting. So, um, I mean, basically the ones that do have, the more prevalent mantids out there that do have ears, it's basically all ultrasonic, and then there's an offshoot again. Um, that can hear really low frequencies? Yeah, the, the mantises that have the two ears always have the ultrasound ear also. Mm-hmm. Uh, I only know of one case of a mantis that has low frequency but not high frequency hearing. Interesting. So the cyclopean mantis ear, um, it evolved like 120 million years ago, I believe that's what it said. And mm-hmm. But bats actually didn't invade the scene until about 60... I don't know, 63 million years ago. So uh, why do you think that is? I mean, because it seems that this would 
be an ideal tool to evade bats. So yeah. what was it doing before that? Well, I think that's a really interesting evolutionary issue. Mantis have clearly used their ultrasonic hearing for evading bats. And as far as we know, that's the primary function of it. Other insects also use ears for evading bats. So the idea was that this was a tremendous evolutionary pressure that drove the evolution of ears in lots of different kinds of insects. Mm. But that obviously can't be true for mantises because they had their ears, you know, 15, 20 million years, actually more than that, 50 million years before bats ever showed up. Sure. So that means they must have been using it for something else. Exactly. What do you think? Well, we don't even know whether they were listening to ultrasound. They could have been listening to other frequencies. They could have been talking to each other. They could have been listening for different types of predators. They could have been using their hearing as a crude way to localize prey. Mm -hmm. I think the message there, though, is just because an animal uses a sense for a particular purpose now doesn't mean that that's what it evolved for. Sure. It may have been used for something else uh, originally. When this ear evolved back in the uh, Cretaceous, mantises did not, in fact, look like many of the mantises that we know of today. They were uh, more cockroach-like, flatter mantises that would, would, would scuttle around in, in the vegetation, sort of. Hmm. We know this for uh, the fossil record and, and shale deposits, that they looked quite different than the modern-day mantises that we know. Interesting. So here's my final and probably the most annoying question of the day. <laughs> Can you dispel the notion that all female mantids are sexual cannibals? Oh. I know. People ask you that a lot, don't they? Hey, <laughs> I get it every time, don't you, Gavin? I do. Yeah. It's annoying. It, it is. Well, isn't there just one species out there that needs to do it in order to disinhibit a ganglion in order for the copulatory response to occur? So I'll do the neural side, guys. All right, go for it, guys. Okay. Um, that, that story was actually initiated by a very prominent neurophysiologist back in the 1930s. And he did discover, in fact, that if you take a mantis's head off, it releases, it disinhibits copulatory movements. Somehow that got converted into the idea that that was necessary for successful mating, <laughs> and it isn't. They can, I've seen mantises mate without their heads, but most often they mate with their heads on just fine. Mm -hmm. so, so that part's not true. I don't know of a, uh, uh, any mantis that needs to have its head removed either. <laughs> I, I have a little theory on this, this whole thing, and I, and I think it has to do with pheromone usage. Okay. So mantis, female mantises can release pheromones, and, and there are also many mantis species that don't release pheromones. And I think the ones that release pheromones attract so many males that they become less valuable to the female. If sure. the female mates and may eat one or eat one before it even gets a chance to mate with her, well, there's probably going to be another one coming along in another hour or so. When a uh, female that doesn't rely on pheromones to attract a mate may only have visual cues and may and the male would have a chance encounter with her and that chance encounter is going to be so much more valuable that the prospect of eating him and ruining a potential mating event would be catastrophic mm -hmm. to maybe the continuation of her genetic line great that's unproven <laughs> unresearched Good idea, well. Gavin. it sounds somewhat reasonable <laughs> though all right so it's that time of the day charles well, Dr. Yeager, Dr. Spencer, I want to thank you for an uh, uh, interesting interview, but now it's time to play our game, the Grokatron 5000. <laughs> I warned you guys. 
Yeah. Okay, we're ready. All right. All right. This is our supercomputer formerly known as Deep Blue. And today the Grokatron 5000 has uh, chosen the topic, which of the following characteristics could be used to describe the following people and why? So uh, the characteristics are cannibalistic, predatory, cousin of cockroaches, camouflaged, or highly evolved. So for the following five people, they would like to know which, which ones they are. So uh, Dr. Yeager, Dr. Spence, you ready to play the game? We'll try. Indeed. Okay, here we go. Person number one, what characteristic would describe the talk show host Oprah? Hmm, highly evolved. Camouflaged. I agree with highly evolved. Tell me about camouflaged. Well, if you have your own television program, you have to uh, adapt to all the situations. True. True. Okay, but highly evolved. Well, not only adaptable in the sense that Gavin was saying, but both very talented and also very insightful. You know, finally, another person who doesn't hate on the Oprah the way that everyone else does. <laughs> I always feel the need to defend my Oprah. Um, okay, <laughs> number two, Christine O'Donnell, the Tea Partier who won the Delaware Senate primaries. Well, I would say predatory if I can change it to mean hungry. <laughs> <laughs> I would say cannibalistic since she took out the standard GOP party line there. Very good. <laughs> okay, here we go. Number three, um, the Jersey Shore cast. Let's see, what was the uh, the middle one? The uh, cousin, cousin of, of cockroach. Enough <laughs> <laughs> said. Okay then. Um, all right. All right. Well, number four is pop starlet uh, Lady Gaga. Camouflage. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna go with that too. Camouflage for sort sure. Sort of a reverse camouflage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you um, happen to see her meat dress? Fabulous. <laughs> I think that was sort of a track predators. I don't know. <laughs> okay, and then right. uh, here's the last one, guys. Uh, Bill O'Reilly. I would have to go with maybe predatory. Strong, unwavering opinions. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Yeager. I'll go with that. All right. Okay, gentlemen, thank you so, so much for being on the show today. We really appreciate it, and have a great day. Thanks for talking to us. Thanks. Thanks a lot. All right. Have a great one. Bye-bye. Take care. All right. Very cool. And, of course, I'd like to thank both of our guests again. So we have uh, Dr. Gavin Svensson and Dr. David Yeager as well. <laughs> thank you for talking to us about Project Mantidia. Uh, you know, I can't believe the uh, mantids are such an amazing group of creatures there. I've been telling you this forever. They're, <laughs> they're absolutely my favorite creatures. What bums me out, though, uh-huh. the close relationship to roaches. I just don't like that. You know, that's like the Vulcans and the Romulans. Uh, you know, eventually... No, it's not. <laughs> Anyway, um, oh, did we? Uh, did you tell everybody about what's going on uh, yeah. uh, in the next two weeks? Yes, uh, Richard Dawkins uh, will be on the show, and he'll be talking about uh, evolution and possibly the God delusion as well. We'll see. So, um, and also, I just want to reiterate: please send us emails, tell us what you think of the show, and tell us good things about us. And of course, <laughs> um, tell us what you want to hear on our show. We will try to accommodate. Thank you so much. Uh, well, this has been the Grok Science Show you're, you were listening to. Uh, I've been your host, uh, Charles Lee. And I'm Elise. And we'll be back into more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to see us, you can do so uh, on the web. Our web address is www.groks.net. You can also email us at science at groks.net. And we're on Facebook. Have a great afternoon. <laughs>